Welcome to Let's Talk Agriculture. In this podcast, Adam White, Head of Agriculture for Barclays UK, is joined by Tristan Fisher, founder of Fisher Farms, and James Trotman, Agritech Lead at Barclays Eagle Lab, to discuss the benefits of vertical farming and what is needed to make it a more commercially viable farming solution in the future. Here's Adam. Welcome to our third Barclays Agriculture podcast of 2023. And we've been on an interesting journey this year, exploring the current world of agriculture from our relationship managers on the ground and and some of the impacts of global events. We've also recently looked at the role of rare breeds in commercial regenerative farming. And we've got planned for our next podcast to talk to some newly qualified consultants about opportunities for new entrants to the sector. But I'm, I'm really excited about today's conversation with our guests, where we're going to be exploring future food systems and agricultural methods. So we have James Trotman, who is our head of agritech for Barclays Eagle Lab. So hi, James. Hi, Adam. Great to be on the podcast. Excellent. And Tristan Fisher, who is the founder of Fisher Farms. Hi, Tristan. Uh, hi. Uh, thank you very much for uh, having me this morning. It's, it's a pleasure to have you. So, so Tristan, we'll go straight to you, if that's okay, and get straight into it. Could you tell us a little bit about Fisher Farms and probably for some of our listeners, what actually is vertical farming? Yes, absolutely. So Fisher Farms is a business which is the vertical farming business, and it was set up a number of years ago in about 2017. And maybe it's just worth talking about vertical farming first and then sort of understand what Fisher Farms does sort of on top of that. So vertical farming is essentially hydroponic farming, but in a vertical format. And so most people will be used to having tomatoes and bell peppers and cucumbers and things like that, which have been grown hydroponically for the past sort of 20, 30, 40, 50 years, depending on the type of product. So people are are already eating a lot of hydroponics food. And a lot of that product is grown in glass houses, and a lot of the product actually comes from places like the Netherlands, um, which has a very extensive hydroponics and glasshouse industry. The difference between hydroponics and vertical farming is that hydroponics is typically done on one level, and vertical farming is essentially a series of hydroponic systems on shelves. And if you imagine in our farm one and our farm two, we've got about 13 levels of shelves, each having a, its own hydroponic system on that. And the reason why vertical farming exists today and why it didn't exist just uh, you know, four, five, six years ago is because vertical farms use lights, artificial lights, to provide the sun equivalent for the growing process. And so a regular hydroponic system will be a big glasshouse using the sun's light, and a vertical farm system will be generally in a big building, and each layer, each shelf will have a series of artificial lights which provide the energy to have photosynthesis for the actual plants. And the key thing which has happened is that typically lights are very hot and they use a lot of energy. And if you have a very hot light, it means that the plants cannot be close to the lights without damaging the plants. And if you have a very inefficient light, it makes the economics of growing under artificial lights prohibitive. And so the big breakthrough, which has really taken place over the last sort of five to 10 years, is that LED lights, which were typically used in households and consumer applications, were uh, shifted from household applications and to be used for growing. 
and those growing lights use very, very little energy, and they use they produce very, very little heat. And as a result of that, you can stack them on top of them in a vertical farm format. So that's essentially what vertical farming is. And Fisher Farms has a building, a vertical farm, which is a very large vertical farm near Litchfield, just north of Litchfield, which we call Farm 1. And then we have Farm 2, which is a very, very large vertical farm, which is just west of Norwich. And by very large, I mean that it produces, or will produce when it goes live, it's currently commissioning, it will produce about 72,000 bags worth of salad per day out of that system. And we typically grow products which are short leafy green things like salads and herbs out of farm too. Thanks, Tristan. That's a really useful overview. And I guess why is vertical farming so important? Then we talk about food security, we talk about net zero. Those are things that the, the sector's talking about at the moment. How does vertical farming play into that and that conversation? So vertical farming has a number of, of sort of interesting attributes. First of all is that we are very efficient from a land perspective. So farm two, for example, is a four-acre footprint building, but that four-acre footprint building produces the same amount of food as a thousand acres of British farmland. So a thousand acres of British farmland equals a four-acre Fisher Farms building. So very, very efficient in terms of land use. The second is that we are extremely efficient in terms of water consumption. So typically a vertical farm uses about 5% of the water of a conventional farm. We also have a water system which is a closed loop. So the water goes, the hydroponic system, you know, the water, which has a nutrient inside that water, just goes around around the shelves. And once it's gone through the plants, it then goes back into the various storage containers. We add more nutrient to it, and then the water gets recycled again and again and again. And what this means is that we don't have nitrates and we don't have phosphates which leach into the soil, which is what you would typically get in conventional farming. So the impact on local water streams and so forth like that is zero because none of it is actually leaving the building. And we also don't use pesticides, fungicides, and insecticides, which also clearly have a, a negative impact on the environment as well. So from a water consumption perspective, from a sort of chemical uses perspective or, or very, very good. And then on top of that, we can grow our products 365 days a year, which means that as a UK supplier, we're able to supply our products all year round. And we can produce those products without any link to what is going on in the external environment. So if you have a snow or a snowfall or ice or very hot conditions, or very dry conditions, or flooding, all those kind of things which have an impact on farming outside, we are not exposed to at all. So we can produce a crop which is extraordinarily reliable compared to field-grown crops. And because we are providing the plants with the ideal environment to grow, so you know, I talk about our plants, you know, our seeds going to heaven, plant heaven, where they get everything they want, the best humidity, the best water, the best nutrient, the best temperature, the no bugs, there's nothing, we're just going to eat them or anything like that. It's a great environment, which means that the plant really has the ability to be the most tasty, healthy, delicious, best looking plant that you can get because it's in a really, really great environment for it. And so you know, by having 365 days a year production, 
Now, if you compare to most farms in the UK, which will be producing for sort of six, seven months of the year, it means that from an environmental perspective, we're not importing food from uh, North Africa. Now, there's a lot of products which come from Morocco into the UK market, Kenya. So a lot of those products which are typically air freighted in, essentially, we can grow in the UK without having to have the sort of the carbon footprint associated with flying salads halfway around the world. Yeah. And it's an interesting point because so the main crop that you're able to produce at the minute is salads and herbs. And I think that's when I've spoken to other vertical farmers, that's one of the challenges in terms of making that a viable commercial option. I saw recently that you conducted a trial with some arable crop. So what do you see the future looking like for, for vertical farming? We have essentially three phases of our crops, and we refer to phase one crops are short leafy green things. So they're essentially salads and herbs. And those are products which we can grow today at a price point that is competitive with field grown crops. So same price, but we have all the various benefits and attributes you get from vertical farming, which makes it a very attractive proposition. And that's our phase one. But we ultimately want to get to our phase two crops. And our phase two crops are what we refer to as fruiters. And so fruiters for us are things like strawberries and blueberries and raspberries and tomatoes, and actually even things like mushrooms, even though mushroom technically isn't a fruit. And those are our phase two crops. And those crops have a larger benefit in terms of, of health. You no, know, they are you know, they have a lot of cal- no, they have more calories than say salads, they've got more nutrition than salads and things like that. So they're a sort of more interesting crop for us to grow. But ultimately where Fisher Farms is headed is our phase three crops. And phase three crops for us are rice and wheat for carbohydrates and fifty two percent of of human calorific consumption comes from those two crops. And then also peas and soybeans. And those are very, very good sources of protein. And so if you have a diet which is uh, has, has a heavy amount of, of plant-based proteins, it's much, much better for the environment. And those plants are actually quite difficult to grow without significant environmental impact elsewhere as well. Now, one of the things that supermarkets are crying out for is soybeans, which don't come from land which was once rainforest and which was cut down and then you know replanted with with soybeans so those are sort of the areas which we're focusing on so phase one to phase two phase three and essentially the business is focused about reducing cost all the way through and the reason why phase two happens later and phase three happens even later than that is that we need to reduce the cost of electricity and that's going to be a factor of time as more and more renewable energy comes on stream which is lower cost than conventional energy. And then as our lights become more efficient, the amount of electricity which we actually consume will go down. Therefore, you know, that part will improve. And then finally, there's a lot of work which we can continue to do on automation, which makes one of the other key areas of farming, which is access to people. As many of your farming audience will know, you know it's very hard to get people nowadays. You know, the fields, you know, a lot of crops aren't being planted or aren't being harvested. Uh, simply because there's a lack of of labor in the agricultural sector. So farm two is a highly automated farm, for example. So we fully automate our seeding, all our harvesting, all of our movements of our trays, all of our cleaning processes, all that kind of stuff is done automatically. And so the type of people who we have in in the business are generally quite highly skilled people with a lot of engineering backgrounds and and operational backgrounds and, and so forth like that. Essentially, the direction of travel is 
going to the carbohydrates and the peas. And that's something which is a huge market ahead of us. And when you talk about that phase two particularly, obviously recently we've seen some of the challenges around uh, tomatoes and cucumbers and, and shipping channels and availability. Obviously, this solves a problem there for the UK in terms of food security because we, we, we recognise we're not very secure in terms of some of those vegetables and fruits. So almost what's stopping more vertical farms being built? Is What are the biggest challenges? I presume energy costs are one of them. You, you've touched on that. But what are the other challenges that, that you see in the sector? So vertical farming is a relatively new sector. And when I set up Fisher Farm, I thought that I was going to be able to buy a lot of equipment off the shelves and just integrate those things. And hey, presto, I've got a vertical farm. And to a small scale, you can do that. So when we started off our business, uh, we started off in a shipping container and I, you know, we had it designed and manufactured, but ultimately most of those components were off the shelf components. But as we went from the shipping container to farm one, the complexity increased significantly and the types of machinery and equipment which we needed simply didn't exist. And so we actually had to go and design and, and get built all of that equipment ourselves. And then farm two, which is a 25,000 square meter for growing area building, it's, it's the largest or one of the largest vertical farms in the world. There just simply aren't any suppliers out there who could actually build to that kind of scale, who had the experience of, of that equipment. And so we had to build a lot of our own equipment and that in farm two. And so it's actually very difficult to get to scale. And scale is what is needed if you want to be price competitive with field grown crops. So essentially, small scale vertical farms are uneconomic. Well, they are economic as a luxury item, but they are really struggling to be economic as a commodity crop. And since Fisher Farms' aim is to be a commodity producer um, rather than a luxury item. We always are focusing on cost, cost, cost. And so we know we can grow phase two crops today. We know that fruiters are possible and, and there are vertical farms which are growing strawberries and so forth like that. But we are trying to do that at a price point which always matches field-grown crops. And therefore, we have a higher quality compared to field-grown crops. But we match the price and therefore we should, at least theoretically, always have a customer buying from us because, well, the same price, but better compared to the alternative. That's really interesting. So just from my side of things, Tristan, how could UK farmers benefit from vertical farming and how do you see the future of land ownership as vertical farming becomes more prevalent and technology advances? I think that there's one thing which is worth noting, which is that vertical farming can't do everything. And so vertical farming, there is a strong premium in the vertical space. So plants which have big root systems or are very tall, like trees, simply don't grow cost-effectively in vertical farm. It, it's possible. But essentially, things like root plants, potatoes and carrots, etc., you're not going to be seen growing in a vertical farm. You're not going to see apple trees. You're not going to see walnuts and avocados and things like that. So there are more plants that cannot be grown in vertical farms than there are plants which can be grown in vertical farms. So vertical farm provides a very, very important niche, but it is not by any stretch of the imagination going to be able to provide all crops to all people. There are some areas where vertical farming has you know, a real benefit directly for existing farmers. So one is that we are a large renewable energy consumer. So electricity is really, really important to us. And there are a lot of people in the farming sector 
who have solar farms, who have wind farms on their land. And in many cases, they can't actually build those solar farms or wind farms which they'd like to because they don't have access to the grid. Whereas a vertical farm could actually potentially connect up with a conventional farmer, which has a weak grid or poor grid or almost no grid, and actually allow them to provide electricity to us, which we would then be able to use from a, a vertical farming perspective. So that's, a, that's an easy win, I think, for any kind of conventional farmer to sort of get into a relationship with a vertical farm business. In addition to that, there are a lot of things which vertical farms have the capacity to do which will help conventional farming. And so, for example, it takes a long time to develop seeds and new variations on crops. And so growing those products in vertical farms where we can create the exact temperature and climate conditions that you're trying to test for would allow seed companies to actually modify their seeds over time at a much accelerated rate, which is very beneficial when you can think about climate change. So one of the areas of climate change, its greatest impact is going to be on agriculture. We're expecting to have much higher summer temperatures, uh, much drier soil. We're also expecting to have extraordinarily heavy rainfall from time to time as well. So sort of flash flooding. And so you go, you're looking for plants which not only can deal with a very high temperature, but also could potentially, and dry, but also could potentially deal with flash flooding at this sort of you know, another day during that, that entire cycle. And so if, if you're a plant seed company and you want to know what the temperature in the UK is going to be like in 2050, and you want to make sure that you have the supply of grains which are relevant for UK farmers in that new environment, by testing those in a vertical farm, you actually will be able to see whether those seeds are good seeds or bad seeds. And so you'll basically be able to prepare your seed bank and your seed type to provide seeds which are relevant for different types of environments in the future as well. So that's a really interesting area because essentially what it means is that conventional farming will have the right type of seeds which they can put across all their fields at a future date without worrying about climate change issues. It's pretty interesting. Thanks. So if I'm a UK farmer listening to this and thinking this sounds like a brilliant idea, are there systems that are developed enough for the use of, say, disused agricultural buildings to be linked into a vertical farming system? Are there options for controlled or semi-controlled environments to help UK farmers produce more food off their existing infrastructure? I think that's a really good question. And that's not, you know, what Fisher Farms is really focusing on. But I'm sure there are a number of companies out there who potentially could work with existing farmers to actually help them do that kind of thing, you know, using existing buildings and so forth. The issue which you're always going to get to, though, is scale. And so, like I was talking about earlier, the smaller scale farms really struggle economically. Larger scale farms are just significantly more efficient in terms of, of what they can do. And so, I think for small scale farming, you have to really focus on niche markets and really focus on local markets. And so I think that there is a really healthy market, I think, what I refer to as mom and pop businesses, where you can essentially have a shipping container or two, which will grow a very, very specific type of luxury item, which will be focused on a very specific type of market. And I think you can make a nice business out of that. It doesn't require a huge amount of additional time and labor. And I think that that is something which is probably in the price bracket of a lot of farmers to actually develop as well as a sort of a side business in the same way that a lot of farmers now do glamping or they'll do 
sort of activity days. And so it's that kind of income stream, which I think is very accessible to a lot of people, a lot of farmers, and would work very nicely for their local community as well. Perfect. Thanks. Thanks, Tristan. And I'm going to ask a question because there'll be a lot of people thinking this, and, and apologies, it might not be a very serious question, but we talk about strawberries, we talk about lettuces being grown in controlled environments and vertical farms. So one of the challenges is at this time of year, we all get sort of strawberries from other parts of the world that taste awful, and we all look forward to that British strawberry. So produce that you grow, does it taste like it's British produce? Does it taste like it's real field grown? What's the quality comparison? So the quality comparison is very high. And in fact, there's a vertical farm company, which is out there, which produces probably the finest strawberries that you can buy. And most of the sort of the very top restaurants will actually buy these strawberries and they sell these strawberries at an incredibly high price point because they're just literally insanely delicious. So I think that can vertical farming produce good quality crops? I think the answer is absolutely yes. And I think that, as I've mentioned earlier, we are providing the ideal environment for any kind of plant. And therefore, if you can control the environment, you can do it on a regular basis, then you can get a great crop. And I think the way to think about it is winemaking. So if you think about the wine industry 25, 30 years ago, before the Australians came in and before the Australian technology came in, wine was very much linked to a specific part of a particular country, you know, whether you're on a south slope or a north slope or how the incline of the slope had the impact on the amount of water, the type of minerals and stuff like that. And you could have certain wine regions which are very good generally, but in a good year, you'd have a fantastic wine. And in a bad year, which was basically code for bad weather conditions, you'd have a really disgusting wine. And so you'd always need to know what year or what was the vintage of the wine you were drinking, because it made a huge difference whether you're having a 75 or a 83 vintage wine. When the Australians came in, they brought in technology to actually produce consistently high quality wine year in, year out. And they then exported that technology all over the world. And most winemakers nowadays, even their French winemaker, will use Australian-based technology and they get consistently good wine. And nobody really worries anymore whether you're going to have a 2020 wine or a 2018 wine or 29 wine because the, the quality is so high because of technology. And so what winemakers can do is improve the quality because of technology. And that's essentially what we can do in vertical farming as well. We can really produce a fantastic product. And we've had buyers come to us and they've tasted our product and stuff like that. And they say, wow, this is Michelin quality watercress. We've never had anything like this before. You've only been growing for such a short period of time. That's insane. We've never seen or tasted product like that you have produced. So yes, we absolutely can produce fantastic quality out of a vertical farm setup. So fantastic quality food with reduced inputs, better water control, reduced runoff of, of potential chemicals, and and you can fully control that environment. And, and, and the other thing I picked up was just around that ability to be able to test things for the future as we adapt to the climate change. So it, it sounds like there's loads of benefits, and it's a sector that continues to develop. And I think it's been on a journey over the last 10, 15 years with technology keeping up. But is, is there anything from your perspective, Tristan, that you know very often... We'll talk to government, we'll talk to other bodies across the UK. Is there anything else that can be done to support this? Because I guess if we can reduce reliance on imported foods that can be produced in the UK that are closer to source, that are closer to, to local communities, 
that's good for everybody and all of the benefits we've talked about. So is there anything you'd specifically ask or, or want to champion? Yeah, Adam, I think that's a great question. And the answer is, is that developing a vertical farm takes time, not just to sort of to actually build it, but it takes a lot of time to actually get all the planning permissions in place and access to all the things which you like to be able to get access to. So a vertical farm essentially needs access to the grid, you know, ideally. And yes, we can use renewables directly, but we still always want to have as much of a grid backup as we possibly can. So having priority access to the grid, I think it would be a good thing. We need access to mains water. And so although, yes, we could abstract the water directly ourselves, having access to town's water would be a good thing. So being able to have access and easy access and reliable access, so that would be great. Planning permission is really, really important. And so the reason why we are where we are near Norwich is because there is a local development order which allows agricultural-related buildings to be installed very, very quickly. And so we skipped about a year's worth of planning as a result of doing that. So that made our ability to build much, much faster than we would have been able to. And so having these kind of food enterprise zones, local development orders in place across the country would make it much, much easier for us to actually build these vertical farms. And I think that for local authorities, if you're trying to attract businesses like Fisher Farms to your neck of the woods and all the jobs, the high paying jobs which come with it, then doing something like getting an LDO and a food enterprise zone up and running before we turn up would make a significant difference. And then the final part is that we are heavily reliant on renewable energy, wind energy and solar energy, because they are the cheapest form of electricity that you can buy. And they're also green. And so it's the combination of being green and carbon neutral, which is, is important. But the fact is that it's cheaper for us to buy electricity from a wind farm or from a solar farm, which is connected to us via private wire, than it is from getting from the grid. And so the ability for vertical farms to not just get planning permission for being a vertical farm, but also the ancillary land necessary for a solar farm or a wind farm would be great. And I think it's very frustrating that it's so hard to actually develop wind farms in the UK. And for a vertical farm, we'd only really need one or two turbines, which would be sufficient for most of our electricity needs. And so if we could get a fast track process where we can actually build a vertical farm and pop up two wind turbines nearby, that would be a great result for us as well. That's really useful. And so Tristan, thank you so much. It's been really insightful today. Is, is there any final points you'd, you'd like to make? Yeah, I think that vertical farming is a very hopeful technology. And one of the things, you know, I've got teenage kids and I'm sort of very aware how a lot of young people look at the world without the optimism that perhaps our generation had. And partly it's because they've been told repeatedly that climate change is happening and that the world is going to cook and everybody's going to die. And whilst it's important to have a clarion call to action to do something about climate change, so that, that fear to get things done, is, I think, is an important part, it can also be too fearful. And I think it can result in a lot of young people having high levels of you know, mental illness and, and depression and so forth that we probably would have had and we would, would expect. And vertical farming is hopeful because as climate change does really kick in, this is a way of growing food, which allows us to basically grow irrespective 
of what really is going on outside. So even though the world's temperature has got a lot hotter, if you're growing in the safety of a controlled environment, like in a vertical farm, you can still grow food. And that means that we can still feed each other, we can still feed the population of the world. And that's a pretty hopeful message to have. And so you know, I would encourage you know, young people to try to get into vertical farming. There's listeners on your podcast and, and you know, the agricultural sector, and, and particularly, you know, they should try to reach out to vertical farming businesses and actually work on part of the solution to what is going to happen in, in the future. And I think that is a, a hopeful and a positive thing that young people can do. I completely agree. And I, and I, I was going to wrap up by saying that, Tristan, this has been a really positive conversation about some of the opportunities. We talk lots about mitigation of climate and net zero. We don't often talk about adaptation. I think this is a really important part of that journey of, of adapting. But when we're listening to the conversation, there's new jobs, there's high value jobs, there is opportunities for education. We bring STEM into this. There's so many opportunities that we've got. And we also bring our food closer to us, which is a great win. So Tristan, it's been fascinating having you on on the podcast and, and thank you for making the time for us. It's been a, a really useful insight. So thank you very much. James, thank you as well for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have you on and I'm sure people will see you on social media. And if they want to come and meet you, you're normally at our Eagle Lab farm in Lincoln at the University of Lincoln. So please do pop over. And thank you everybody for listening. And to, to Tristan's point, we will be talking on our next podcast to a group of young people who are looking at the agricultural sector, how do they work in the agricultural sector and what the skills that they need for the future are. So so I think they, they tie really, really well together in terms of what does the future of agriculture and hopefully gives all of our listeners something to think about in terms of what is the near-term future and the long-term future look like and, and what are the adaptations that we, we need to make. So thank you, everybody, and have a good rest of the day. Take care. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, James. Thanks, Tristan. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and you'll receive a notification when we release the next episode, when we'll take a closer look at another topic facing UK farm businesses and landowners. All of the Let's Talk Agriculture podcasts are available to listen to or download from the Barclays Let's Talk Business channel on Spotify, Apple and SoundCloud. Make money work for you. Now for the legal stuff. We promise to keep it short. We're not responsible for, nor do we endorse in any way, third-party websites or their content. The views and opinions expressed in this content do not reflect the views of Barclays and shouldn't be taken as statements of policy or intent of Barclays. <laughs>